0: Loving Father, thank you so much that you speak to us by your word and that through your spirit we can understand who you are and what your world is like. And we pray that we get a deeper grasp of you tonight through your word as we look at the book of Judges. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I picked up the uh, three Canadian ministry friends, I gave them a bit of a crash course in Australian life and culture. And apart from telling them what a bloke is, and the differences between our four different codes of football, which may well be three soon, uh, I uh, I shared with them about the tall poppy syndrome. Now, we all know what the tall poppy syndrome is. It's an Australian phenomenon where we help people not take themselves too seriously. Uh, If a person sticks their head up too high above the rest of the crowd, then we assist them by cutting their head off. It's It's an act of kindness, really, to them. Uh, it, it's something that Americans, in particular, don't get. I don't know, do you Can- Canadians? Does it kind of resonate with Canadians to not take yourself too seriously, or is it even more like the Americans? No, no, no. no. That was that was a rhetorical question. If I ever said, oh, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry," <laughs> but it's funny. The only time that we really pick up someone and respect them as a leader is if they've being kind of dragged off the floor by their mates. It's like, come on, mate, we need a leader. Oh, not me, I'm no good. OK, pull you up. It's like, OK. And, and then we get ourselves a leader. And even then, their lofty position is very tenuous. And, and I, I think this attitude to leadership and to life and and, and also to excellence it extends to our language. Uh, so I was, again, explaining to the Canadians that, that if... If you're asked, you know, how are you going? And if you're going quite well, you say, not bad. Now think about it. Not bad. Well, I wasn't talking about badness, degrees of badness. What about degrees of goodness? You know, quite well thanks. No, not bad. And if you're quite, really, really quite well, you say, not bad. You notice that? Uh, (laughs) Well, not bad at all. Right. the, The tall poppy syndrome, I think matches in with something else that we love in life, and that is we love a good underdog. This is not in a particularly Australian thing. It's, it's true of all nations, I think, to some extent. But it really does fit in with our, natural, our national psyche. Uh, so much so that our two would-be prime ministers in the last few weeks have been jostling to try and secure underdog status. Because if one of them looks like, hey, I'm going to win this thing, what do you do? Out comes the tall poppy thing, cuts off their head and they lose. So really, you want to be the guy who's coming a strong second. Because then there's a chance you might come first. And so even when they tell you that the polls are, or looks like the Libs are are likely to lose, it's like, yes, that's what we want if you're a Lib. Because if you're, you know what I mean? Anyway, we kind of like the, the underdog status. But probably the most famous of all Australian underdogs was a particular guy who won a medal against Canadians at the Winter Olympics, and his name is Stephen Bradbury. Okay. Now, did you Canadians, have have you heard the story of Stephen Bradbury? Okay. Oh, well, that one has. Well, you're an Aussie now, really, you know. Uh, Basically, he's a guy who, for his job, part-time, made skates for speed skaters, and uh, he got to go along to the, the Olympics. Uh, it was kind of, you know, surprise, surprise. And for some reason, he kept on winning the, the events in the speed skating, right? And his strategy was he is not fast and he knows everybody else is faster. So all he does is he just hopes that everybody else is falling over. And so off they went and in the, in the semifinals. He just thought the, four, the three of them in front of him are all going to be so highly pressured that they're probably going to fall over and knock each other out. They're really nervous. They'll knock each other. And that happened. And he got through to the final. And off he went. And it was clear that he was coming way behind everybody else. And then somebody fell out, knocked everybody else out, and <laughs> Steve Bradbury came through. And he did this sort of thing, and he looked, put his hands in the air. You've got to see the footage, because it's like... What the heck just happened then? And then, then all of the all of the people who were the, uh, the officials were sort of working out, can we give this guy a gold medal? Because all he did, he's obviously the slowest guy, and they went and they looked at all their rule books and they said, I-, I think we've got to give it to him. And so our first ever gold medal in the Winter Olympics was from the greatest ever underdog, Stephen Bradbury. Uh, I think every Aussie saw that moment, and sorry that the Canadians lost a, a medal in that, you've got a few others in the, in the, uh, in the Winter Olympics, um, I reckon we all yelled out you little beauty when the Aussie got across the line, when he clearly was not fast, but he got there. Why do I tell you all this? Well, it's a good yarn. But the thing is that today in the book of Judges, we're going to see two great stories The first one is about a leader who was flawed and unconventional. He's kind of like a, in a sense, he's a Stephen Bradbury of the judges, okay? And it's a story that we've just heard read out to us, which has made us laugh. And if you're feeling guilty about laughing, don't feel guilty. I think you're supposed to laugh in this particular story. It's a bit black comedy, a bit macabre, this sort of story is about, you know, we'll get to that in a moment. The second story We'll read in a moment. It's about a leader who really wasn't that confident and strong, but he still did good stuff and he's still considered to be a great hero of the faith. Now, all of this is happening at a time when God is being shown time and time again to be faithful to his people. They kept on messing up, disobeying God, and you would expect God to say, I've had enough of you. But instead, God didn't abandon his people despite their rejection. They rejected him, they rejected him, but he didn't abandon them. It's an amazing story, right? And this happens over and over again. We see a cycle of salvation. Last week we saw how God's people went from peace with the Lord, to sin and idolatry, to enslavery. Then they cried out to him, and then God would raise a judge, then Israel would be delivered, and around and around and around and around it goes. And it happens again today. Chapter 3, verse 12. Once again... The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab, bad guy, control over Israel because of their evil. The, the, The people of God have sinned again and God said, okay, I'm handing you over to Eglon. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Once again it happens. And King Eglon goes in and what do they do? They take possession of Jericho. You remember the book of of Joshua remember what Mandy shared earlier on remember the Jericho thing how they do the trumpets and they go around and then the walls fall down and they take the city and all that kind of stuff and it's their city and now Oh lost it sorry oh really after all that and 18 years they are in slavery and why did it happen because God made it happen God's people are in slavery because the Lord made it happen and it's a fresh reminder that God uses evil to punish and purify his people. God uses evil to punish and purify his people. And they are having a horrible time for 18 whole years under the thumb of Eglon and his cronies. And in their anguish they finally think, what do we do? Ah, Let's cry out to God. Verse 15. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay. What do we learn about Ehud? Firstly, he's the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin, eh, not so red hot. They didn't really do a great job of driving out the bad guys from Jerusalem they kind of failed there and so what's this guy going to be like Eh. well he's certainly not from the tribe of Judah that's for sure but anyway Benjamin but the second thing is we learn that he is left-handed if you're left-handed and you're here we love you okay God loves you don't worry about it all right Uh, it's okay but in the time of this bit of the Bible uh, being left-handed was not such a great thing okay it's because normally you use your right hand to use the sword. And so everybody's there together and, you're, and if you're left-handed, it's kind of, oh, hi, sorry, it kind of just doesn't work. But maybe there's something more than this because more literally, even though the, I checked all the English translations, they all just say left-handed, left-handed, left-handed. Quite literally, according to the nerdy book that I read on this, it, it says that he literally was bound in his right hand. Now that could just be another way of saying he's left-handed. Or it could be that his right hand doesn't work at all. And so here's this guy who God has raised up to be this mighty warrior and show us your right hand, mate. Ain't got one. Whoa, this is not so good. This guy's kind of, he's the Stephen Bradbury of the judges, right? Above all, he is substandard. I was thinking of another nice word you could say, but just substandard, not too crash hot. Uh, he's the Stephen Bradbury of the judges and this is important however because Ehud is sent to bring Eglon the money that was demanded of God's people as slaves if you were a slave to this guy you had to work hard to give him your stuff you make all this grain and then you take it in and you starve and they get fat that's going to happen a bit more in a little while isn't it so what's Ehud going to do to fix the problem well he had a Hunting plan, verse 16. Ehud, the good guy, made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long. This is a serious little bit of kit, right? One foot long, double-edged. And he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. Now everybody else, what do they do? It's on your left thigh. Why? Because you've got a right hand. So you kind of, down you go, out it comes and ho-ho! Uh, But if they were sort of trying to check to see under security whether or not he's got any concealed weapons, they're only going to check his right thigh, aren't they? Because, of course, everyone's got sorry, the left thigh, right? Because that's what you do when you're right-handed. And, of course, everyone's right-handed. And this guy, what good is he going to be anyway? Because his right hand doesn't work. And so, anyway, we've got that, we've sorted that out, and we find out now that, verse 17, he brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. Why do we need to know that? Well, we consider being very, very fat to be, let me say, probably a weakness in our society. But back then, if you were very, very fat, you are just very, very, uh, you have abundant wealth. If, if you can get that fat, it must be that you are very, very rich. And so if you're all skinny and scrawny, then it's because you're poor. And if you're huge and fat, it means that you are very, very wealthy. And so here's Eglon who is very, very fat. Now I don't I I can read a little bit of Hebrew, uh, just enough to impress you occasionally in sermons, but not really to be much use. But uh, I understand from this that the name Eglon means calf or young bull. So if you're Hebrew and you're reading this in the original Bible, you're hearing about this very, very fat bull or calf. And you might be thinking he's a fattened calf. That's just what you're reading. And so Elon, that's not his name, Eglon is the fat calf ready for slaughter. He is ready for slaughter. Anyway, Ehud turns up, he hands him over the grain and says, see you later. And you're thinking, hang on a second doesn't he have this, what's going to happen with this thing that's strapped to his leg? Well, Anyway, he goes back and then he gets halfway home, turns around, comes back and he says to Eglon, well I've got a secret message. And so so Ehud walk, walks over to Eglon who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room and Ehud said, I have a message from the Lord for you. Or literally, I have a, a thing, a matter from the Lord for you. And as King Eglon rose from his seat, as difficult that must have been, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. That's pretty full on stuff, isn't it? The tyrant of God's people is now assassinated by a most unexpected visitor. And the very weakness of Ehud is the strength that God uses to deliver his people. It's really cool, isn't it? Ehud's weakness gave him the strength, the Stephen Bradbury of the time of Judges. And he gives his message. He says, okay, here's my message to you from God. Ha! And so there goes the it, it's pretty violent stuff and you may not think it's particularly funny, although as I was hearing the Bible reading, you did laugh along. But I think we're supposed to smile at this, especially when this man who is being humiliated is the one who has brought such abject misery to God's people for 18 years. So what happens? Well, verse 22, the dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. Wow. So King Ehud did not pull out the dagger because he couldn't find it; it's stuck in there. And the king's bowels empty. Ooh! You just imagine the sight. Don't imagine too hard. Uh, then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. He ran away, or we don't know what the word latrine. It, anyway, it's he, he gets out of there. And well, it's pretty gross. This is pretty boy humor here. Sorry, boys. Uh, it's almost comic-like. It's black comedy, and we're supposed to have a little bit of a chuckle. But it's really awkward for the king's servants because they go and they, they want to go in and see their king. They think, gee, has been taking a long time. And they probably looked at each other and said, do you want to go in? I'm not going to go in there. The last time the guy goes in there, he got into all sorts of trouble. Yeah, okay, well, let's wait. And they wait and they wait. They think, what is he doing? I don't know, maybe he's on the toilet. He's been on there a long time. I know. I know. It smells like he's on the toilet. And they've been waiting a long, 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 long time. And then finally it's kind of scissors, paper, rock. And someone goes, they get a key. It's like, you got a key? you want to use it? Well, it's up to you. <laughs> be brave. And they go in there. They finally open up the door. And there is Eglon there in a bit of a mess and not really alive at all. And it's pretty horrible. And so... This is what happens after a king would had gone, the king's servants returned, found the doors doors locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned, got a key, and they opened the doors. They found their master dead on the floor. Well, the one who appeared weak, that is the left-handed dude, was able to humble the strong. And now he was able to lead God's people to victory against the Moabites all because he was able to kill the big guy and we read then that they attacked the Moabites killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors not one of them escaped so Moab was conquered by Israel that day and there was peace in the land for 80 years Uh, you see where it says there 10,000 of their most able-bodied warriors Um, there's another way to to translate able-bodied and that is sort of oversized. So you can kind of imagine it that the guy who's the fat, fat king uh, who's been living off the people of God's grain has his army and they're all pretty chubby as well. And so God's army are running after them, lean and mean and ready to go and all of Eglon's people are sort of waddling along oh! and 10,000 of them killed. Funny? Funny? We were supposed to laugh, okay? You might say this is kind of black comedy and I feel a bit embarrassed laughing about, you know, the stuff that we've talked about and poo and things like that. But in all of this, the fat soldiers couldn't outrun God's army and we're supposed to cheer and laugh and say, this is great. And you might feel that that if God was here, let's get a seat, on this, this throne here, and he's sitting there and he's listening to all this, you might expect that God would be sort of, doing these sort of crossing his arms and and go, "Mm, you're not supposed to laugh at those sorts of things because this is church and all this kind of Well, I think you're wrong. Because God will be sitting there laughing and laughing and laughing. Have a listen to Psalm 2, which is quoted four times in the New Testament. It's a real top-notch psalm in terms of its relevance. It says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth, like Eglon, prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Messiah, his Christ. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. And here we go, look at this. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. Laughs. You idiots, you really think you can stand up against me, the one true living God? You get together and you say, we've got a cunning plan. It's like, give me a break. The Lord scoffs at them. And then in anger, anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with, their, with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The Lord has victory over his enemies and we are supposed to laugh at the way in which God will win over the greatest greatest enemy of all and experience the greatest victory of all. See, sometimes we might think that the Christian life is somewhat powerless compared to all of the powerful people of our world and our planet. But at the end of the day, we are Amongst those who, though we are weak, we are on God's side, who is strong. As Barry Webb notes in his terrific book on judges, he says, By by its humour, the Ehud story invites us to see the tyrants of this world as God sees them and to join in the laughter of heaven. We are invited to join in the laughter of heaven, which is exactly what we have been doing as God has freed his people through this man who was the Stephen Bradbury of the book of Judges. Well there's a second story and I'm going to do it a whole lot quicker but it's also another underdog kind of story. And the cycle continues. After Ehud's death the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, okay? Sisera's the boss of the army, the bad guy, right? And he lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Okay, remember what happens? God's people forget the Lord. They say, you're useless, won't follow you. God then says, okay, well, I'm going to put you under a bad king to wake you up and make you confess your sins and repent. And they're against this guy, Sisera, who is a bad guy, and he's got 900 iron chariots. He's a scary guy. He's got a lot of military power. Yet again, God's people are oppressed by a powerful army. God's people are, again, oppressed by a powerful army. So what do they do? They cry out to the Lord for help, and we meet Deborah, who's a prophetess, and she's also Israel's judge. And so this is how God's going to work through Deborah. Skip a few verses to verse 6. We read that one day Deborah sent for Barak. He's the guy of the next story. He's son of Abinoam, who lived in Kedesh in the land of Naphtali. Don't worry about those places. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, the bad guy, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River, and there I will give you victory over him. All right, so Deborah, right, she's the judge. She is the, the next one who's leading God's people. And she tells Barak, the military guy get ten thousand guys together and go to this particular hill. It seems pretty straightforward. How is Barak going to react? Well, before I tell you anything more about that, let me tell you about his name. Uh, <laughs> Barrack's name means lightning. Now, it's kind of like um, Barrack is sort of like Captain Lightning. You know, you, you kind of think of you know, Marvel characters. It's sort of this is Barrack, right? He is. Captain Lightning, all right? And you'd expect him to be a superhero. I don't know what his power would be. Anyway, you can work that out at dinner. But nonetheless, he's a great and mighty warrior. But this superhero is actually a little bit shaky. He's a bit of an underdog. He's a bit of a Stephen Bradbury as well. And to be honest, I can understand why. Because Cicera is scary. And he's got 900 iron chariots. Now that is some serious firepower. If I was running there with a, with a little bit of a sword and this chariot with this horse came running towards me, I'd be a little bit scared, right? And so he's told, go and stand there before 900 chariots with your 10,000 men. It's a bit scary. Well, in response to Deborah's word from the Lord, this is what he does. Verse 8, Barak told her, I'll go, but only if you go with me oh, right, it's kind of lacking a little bit of confidence. It's like, oh, Debbie, would you hold my hand? It's, it's kind of like, come on, you're Captain Lightning. And it's like, you want to have the prophetess come along and sort of, you know, say, it's going to be okay. It's like, it, it's not a really a good look. Uh, maybe it's because he wanted to keep the prophetess telling him more stuff from God. Maybe, or maybe he's just a bit of a wuss. I don't know. Maybe he's kind of less... Captain Lightning and more Captain Candle. I don't know. I had a bit of fun trying to work out that name, but uh, you you can tell me another one that you think is a good one. But whatever it is, this is what happens. Verse 9. Very well, Deborah says, I will go with you, Yusuke, but you will receive no honour in this venture for the Lord's victory over Sisera, the bad guy, will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. Now, uh, in in this ancient time, it was obvious that for a woman to lead an army was something that reflected badly on a man. Now, we may not get this in the modern day, and I can understand that. Uh, But whether or not you think it's a problem for women to be in conflict or not, uh, the point was that in this culture, it was really not a good look, and he should have manned up in that sense. He should have grabbed the bull by the horns and manned up, which is actually what he did in the end. He assembled 10,000 warriors to the top of a mountain and then the bad guy came along towards them and the battle was on, verse 14, skipping ahead. Deborah said to Barak, Get ready, this is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. Now, fun little fact. Uh, last year when I was over in Israel, you know I'll ro- roll these stories out from time to time, but um, we were in Nazareth, right? I could show you a photo, but I, I'll show it over dinner if you like. And we were ha- we we're standing at the cliff, which is apparently where they were going to throw Jesus off in Nazareth. And I took a pano, right? and Because uh, uh, you do. And anyway, I did some research, and this mountain that's over there was actually Mount Tabor, right? And then over there was sort of the river. The point of all this is you've got this mountain where... Chariots are not going to cope so well with going up a mountain. But then you've got this massive plain where chariots just eat that for breakfast. And so whilst all of these guys, the good guys, are there on the mountain, they're safe. But as soon as they get down off the mountain and go on the plain, they are toast. Or are they? Deborah says to Barak, don't worry about it, mate. The Lord will definitely give you a victory. And so we read that when Barak attacked the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Run away, run away. And then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy army all the way to Harasheth, Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left. He's not done so badly, really, has he? For this kind of second-rate warrior. He has success, but it's without Sisera, which is a bit... Of a hollow victory really. Maybe this is the reason why he wouldn't receive the honor for this venture. Yeah he got 10,000 people but Cecera got away. So what finally happens well let me just read the rest of it to you when we sort of draw near to a close but here's the interesting story we read that meanwhile Cecera ran to the tent of Jael the wife of Heba the Kenite because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazel. Anyway, don't worry about that. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. What could he possibly be afraid of? Hmm. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. Oh, you must have had a very hard day. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Oh, that's lovely. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you if there's anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and tent peg in her hand. And then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. Um, that didn't go so well for him. Uh, when Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, She said, come and I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he followed her into the tent, found Sarah lying there dead with a tent peg through the temple. This is a bit gory. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the, the Canaanite king, and from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Yes, this is a weird bit of the Bible. If this is the first time you've ever come to church and you're wondering about this sort of stuff of daggers and tent pegs through the head, it's not all like this. But what we are seeing here that in their despair god is in control and even though this guy was not really able to be able to take the full spoils of victory nonetheless captain lightning was still a man of faith he's still a man of faith and why do i say that well you see up here on the walls of church there's a roll of honor There's these lists of all of these people who it says at the bottom, for some of them, they even gave their lives for their country in war. Heroes of of Jamboree right there. Now the New Testament's got a bit of an honour board as well and it's called Hebrews chapter 11. And who would we find in Hebrews chapter 11 other than Captain Light? How much more do I need to say? Verse 32. It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and all the prophets. By faith these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. We're reminded yet again that the Lord uses underdogs to bring about <coughs> salvation. Are you awake now? That microphone has fallen over. Uh, we see here that the Lord uses underdogs to bring about salvation. If you ever feel that you are in a situation where you're not able to do great things for God, remember this. But more than that, far more than that, it's a really important reminder that the weakness of Christ, the one who came and was crucified in the most gory of horrible situations, weak before the Romans, at that point, showed the greatest strength of all, performing the greatest rescue of all time. And this, I think, is a salient reminder that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. And that is most seen in Christ. Let me pray. Great loving Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word that that you save your people even when we sin. And we thank you that even though these people in the time of Judges just kept on disobeying you, that you kept on saving them. And we thank you especially that in your Son, Jesus Christ, you saved us once and for all from sin and death. And we thank you that though he was weak at the cross, we saw the greatest moment of strength of all. And we pray that we might hold on to this weakness And be people who in this world will be seen to be weak, knowing that you, our Lord, are strong and that in Christ we have the victory. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.